All right, let's turn to Galatians chapter 3 tonight, please. The Capitals are not the only ones competing with the Penguins. So am I, twice this week so far. So I'm, I'm surprised to see so many people who have taped the game. All right. Uh, I've already spoken to Pastor Brown a couple of times this week, but we want the entire Title SDI family to extend our sympathy to you, Craig, and the loss of your sister this week. And that makes Craig, makes Pastor Brown the last of the siblings in his family. But you got plenty of them here, buddy. You got plenty of them here. All right. Let's take a couple moments silent. Silent preparation to be quiet professionals. Father, we don't take it for granted the importance of this occasion in this place tonight where your word will go forth and we are confident that it will with power power to elevate attitudes and souls and dispositions, power to enable us to obey the truth, which is the gospel, and to live according to the grace of the gospel toward one another and toward the and to live in the love that is the product and fruit of the Spirit of the Son whom you sent into our hearts, crying Abba. Father, so Abba, we ask your blessing upon this message and upon each person who's come out here tonight and all those who will hear this message either through its conveyance through these listeners or through other means. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Don't forget we're continuing to collect non-perishable food and paper products for the New Kensington Salvation Army and keep that coming. I want to consider tonight, and I woke up, I love to wake up with the thought that I know the Holy Spirit wants me to develop, and that happens once every few days, I think, lately. But I want to consider the promise and the gospel, and Galatians chapter 3 is a good place to begin that consideration, the promise and the gospel. And we'll go to 3.6, and I want to open with three. Six, I want to use Lou Martin's translation, his very famous now Galatians commentary. There's a few commentaries that come out and they gain fame among theologians and that his is one of them. In fact, the last book I'm I'm reading now, there's about 20 theologians each doing an article on Lou Martin and his apocalyptic take on Paul's gospel, which I think is remarkable. I'll give you his translation. Another one is Ernst Kasemann's Romans from 1980, and Ernst Kasemann was Martin's mentor as well as Jürgen Moltmann's mentor, and I'm starting to read that now, some good insights from that. But the promise and the gospel, very important, and I want to outline this first before we go to 3.6, where I'm going to use Martin's translation just for that one verse. The 
one of the main points in Galatians and especially in Galatians 3 is that the gospel was proclaimed in advance to Abraham. But that we know that. But the gospel that was proclaimed to him was an unconditional promise. It was a promise that in him all the nations would be blessed. And we know as the word of God develops that the blessing that he's promised for all the nations that will be blessed in him is the promised Holy Spirit. And therefore the promised Holy Spirit, which is unconditionally promised to all the nations in Abraham, is the spirit by whom we participate in Jesus Christ, in his very shared existence, in whom we also participate in the triune God. That's our great and wonderful privilege. This, I'm putting it off till Sunday to hit the Petrine connection or the connection to Second Peter. It's quite interesting, and I verified this again today, that the epistle called Second Peter was sent, among other places, to Galatia. And it was sort of a supportive word to them after Paul's gospel. But the promise, and this is where a bridge is already seen, the bridge between the unconditional and the universal is seen in the first preaching of the gospel to Abraham. As it says in Galatians 3, eight, we'll see that, but it happened in Genesis 12.3. It happened in Genesis 13.15. It happened later in Genesis 17. We'll hit some of the verses and Genesis 24 and 28, where Paul then develops it. It's not just Abraham to whom the promises were made, but also, and more importantly, to his seed. Paul pulls an exegetical move that's astonishing in Galatians 3:16, And it's, he says that the seed is singular and that the seed is Christ. And so if we were to say the gospel was preached to Abraham as an unconditional promise, and later the law came, the Sinaitic law from Sinai, the law came, the Torah came later with its 613 commands, and that did not nullify the promise. It did not abrogate or do away with the promise any more than someone coming in and doing a codicil to a last will and testament changes the last will and testament. So the promise, interestingly, when the gospel is preached to Abraham, it's this way. In you, all the nations will be blessed. He doesn't say in you, all the nations will be blessed if they believe in your seed. It simply is an unconditional promise. And that's where we have to really start tonight. The promise was unconditional. The law came 430 years later, but had no effect, no effect on the promise. It was made directly by God to Abraham. But the development in this promise, when he gives the promise over and over again, he adds an ingredient to you and to your seed. The gospel preached to Abraham in advance then is the unconditional promise 
that all the nations, and I think we can say that means all humanity, will be blessed ultimately in Christ. All the nations will be blessed in Christ. So we have the Abraham, I'm going a different way than I thought, Abraham-Christ connection. And I'll abbreviate connection this way. I do it all the time on my notes. Don't be offended or hurt by it. Connection, C-N-X-N. Abraham to Christ connection. But then Paul, in another place, develops the Adam-Christ connection. And that we know from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, 1 Corinthians 15, really 20 all the way through 47 or 49, the Adam Christ, the Adam, Christ, or the Abraham Christ connection, the promise, the unconditional promise that in his seed, all the nations, and that includes Israel, because there's no Jew or Gentile designation in the nations, all the nations, including Israel. Paul makes it very clear from Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved and all the nations will come in. The pleroma of the nations will come in. And so there is an unconditional promise made to Abraham, but because it is also made to his seed and it includes all the nations, the unconditional promise is also a universal promise. There's the bridge, which we've already tried to build. I've tried to at least detect the bridge in front of you the past four messages before Sunday. And so the Adam-Christ connection is even richer, but there is a connection between these connections. As in Adam, all humanity dies, so in Christ, all humanity will be made alive. So in Adam, it's even made more adamant. See what I did there? Adam, adamant. And... All the more adamant it is that all of humanity is included in the life-giving grace of Christ. So the same Christ who is the seed in whom all the nations will be blessed, the unconditional promise made to Abraham, is the same Christ in whom all will be made alive. Now the universal we could say acceptance of this gospel is not yet. And there is a church, a vanguard, a proleptic community who has heard the report of this gospel and the gospel has elicited faith. This is another thing we have to be very much aware of faith. Even if we want to call it our faith is along a divine line of direction, a divine line of direction, God acting in Christ, and that includes Christ acting in God through the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the enthronement, starting with the incarnation, and God's act in Christ continues when the gospel is preached and when it elicits faith in you. The elicitation of the faith, it's continuing on a divine line. All of a sudden, it doesn't go back this way, your faith. And many places, the word pistis for faith is considered a work. It is not that you have done a work called believe 
which causes God to have to respond with deliverance or salvation for you as a reward for your work, which is faith. No, faith continues a divine line of direction of salvation. And so it is a faith that is elicited upon the report for faith comes about or is elicited or ignited, we could say, or kindled, if you want. Faith is kindled by the message or by the report, not the hearing. It doesn't say hearing. It doesn't say comes by hearing. The word is akue, meaning the report, akoe, A-K-O-E, comes back to Isaiah 53. As so many things go back to Isaiah 40 to 55, the second Isaiah, who has believed our report, well, leave it up to human beings, nobody. But who has believed our report, said the as Isaiah. Later on in 53.11, he talks about my servant who will justify many, who through his agony, through his passion, through his death, he will justify many. And we know that the many, Paul interpreted as everybody in Romans 5.18. So faith, our faith even, is a participation, and it, it's a gifted participation with Jesus Christ's fidelity. This past week, I had occasion to preach this to people that have never heard it, and I, I, I said, among other things, you're not saved by your faith. We are saved by Christ's faithfulness. That's kind of got a little bit of shock value to it, you see, even in a solemn occasion, eyes might open slightly or brows get furrowed. Or in one case, you get one of these. But faith is along a divine line. By grace are you saved through faith. If you want to even make that the faith that's elicited by the gospel, you still have to have this qualifier. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is? The whole salvation thing, the grace thing, the faith thing, the salvation and the grace and the faith is not from yourselves. It's on a divine line. Salvation is of the Lord, and it doesn't stop being of the Lord when you hear the gospel and when I hear the gospel. And when the gospel is proclaimed, as 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, in conviction and in the power of the Spirit... The gospel itself evokes, we could say is another good word, evokes, elicits, or kindles faith in the listener. And it's at that moment, or it's kind of, it's kind of tricky to figure out exactly when that happened. Did faith happen and then the gift of the Spirit, or did the gift of the Spirit come and then faith? I tend to think that the latter is true, but... Paul asked the question in Galatians 3, when did you receive the Spirit? After doing the works of the law, which is absurd, because then you don't know when, when along that line of human action does the Spirit finally come to you. After circumcision? Well, no, because you have to obey all the law. So is it after you've shown somehow over the course of your life that you've obeyed the whole law, then you're given the Spirit? He said, or did you receive the Spirit Upon the hearing or the report at the at the report of the gospel. And the answer, of course, is that it was at the report at the report of the gospel, which their faith then was elicited. 
They began a participation in Jesus Christ's faithfulness because the Spirit was sent into their hearts on the occasion of the report. So after Paul concluded, and he did so to the Galatians, that they had received the Spirit when their faith was elicited by the gospel. And he concluded that that's when it happened through a rhetorical question that demanded the answer is the second of two options. Not ex ergon from the works of the law, but at the akoe, at the report of the gospel. And that they had received the Holy Spirit on the occasion of the gospel being preached to them before they even had a chance to be circumcised, or I could add, or be baptized. Then Paul says this, and this is where I've done something I don't usually do, but I'm using Martin's translation. Along with his commentary, he did a translation, which it's worth reading in itself. He says in verse 6, and it's sort of an expansion of what's going on. Things were the same with Abraham. And that's the, the essence of it. That's the sense of this verse. The same, things were the same with Abraham. That, that means you heard the gospel which elicited your faith. The gospel is an unconditional promise. Abraham did the same thing. He heard the unconditional promise, and it elicited faith in him. And God considered that faith to be the evidence of his deliverance. And so long before he was circumcised and long before in Genesis 17, 8 to 14, he circumcised all the males in his household, not as a condition for the covenant, but as an obligation for those that were already in the covenant that were Jews. That did not abrogate the fact that Abraham believed his faith was elicited by an unconditional promise. And I find that when I preach the gospel now, I find that faith is actually elicited in people if you include Christ's faithfulness as the cause for their salvation and not require their faith. Once you require faith, you got people with a requirement they can't fulfill. But once you say that their salvation is the source of their salvation and the means of their salvation is the faithfulness of Christ, that elicits faith. That's why Paul said, Peter, you and I, and he even said to the Jewish Christian teachers in Galatia, we're Jews. We're not pagans. We're not sinners like the pagans. We're Jews. But even we have believed in Jesus Christ so that our justification is through the faithfulness of Christ. In other words, we've believed that through the faithfulness of Christ, we've been justified or saved or delivered. So Martin says here, things were the same with Abraham. Quote, he trusted God and as the final act in the drama by which God set Abraham fully right. God recognized Abraham's faithful trust. Now that's, it seems now, what, what he's saying here, and I think he's right, got the right idea here, although I might make a couple of emendations or amendments to that. But it seems that the teachers that had invaded Paul's churches in Galatia, 
Jewish Christian missionaries. I say Jewish Christian as Martin does, not Christian Jews, because Jewish is first to them, Christian is second to them. But they were Christians nevertheless. It seems that these Jewish Christian missionaries had done their own exegesis of the Abraham saga in Genesis chapters 12 through 22. And they had concluded, this is all apparent from what Paul has to do to counter that. They also had concluded that Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be saved. This finds corroboration in Acts 15.1. Or circumcised to be a part of true Israel. And may I say to you that being a part of true Israel is the same thing as being saved. I made that clear in the Israel of God series. So their exegesis of Abraham or Abraham's saga or story in Genesis 12 to 22 concluded that Gentiles or pagans, including the Galatians, needed to be circumcised to be saved or to be a part of true Israel, which is why Paul really enters into the climax of the whole letter in Galatians 6.16 when he calls them the Israel of God. That's, to me, that's the heart, that's the climax of Galatians 6.16. It's not seen that way by others, including, I don't think Martin brought that up, but that's my view. And I taught, that's when I taught Galatians backwards, I taught backwards from that. So they concluded that to, they needed to be circumcised, these Gentiles, because as they based it on Genesis 17, verses 7 to 14. The last clause of which reads this way. If any male, this is God speaking to Abraham, is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And they based the need of circumcising the pagans on that, failing to recognize several things. Moreover, the teachers will no doubt have explained not only this, But the positive fact that Abraham, as it says in the same passage, took his son Ishmael and all the slaves born in his house or purchased with his money, every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. How do you counter this? Paul countered it. He counters this by reasoning by going back further into the narrative of Abraham when Abraham was still a pagan, when Abraham was still a Gentile. And that's where the key part of his story connects with the Galatians. Paul counters this reasoning, therefore, by showing about Abraham's faith, where God credited Abraham's faith elicited by the unconditional promise that God had made to him in Genesis 12.3. On the occasion of his initial calling of Abraham, he said this in 12.3. Go out from your father's house, and he began the promise. He gave the promise there. But I found something, a connection today that hit me pretty strongly, and it's Isaiah 51, a connection to Genesis 12.3. Isaiah 53, or Isaiah 51, let's turn there, because Isaiah 40 to 55 
it would be profitable for a preacher or a pastor to do these 16 chapters. I've kind of intended to do that sometime along the way, but there you have the unconditional and universal gospel wrapped up in Yahweh's servant. But Isaiah 51 says this, Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When I called him, he was only one. I blessed him and made him many. Now that word many pops up again, and it's the same word used in the Septuagint. It pops up again in Isaiah 53, 11. With the word many, we go from 51, 2 to 53, 11. My righteous servant. Remember, the righteous one is Jesus Christ. He is not only the servant of Yahweh, but Yahweh he will justify many. But please remember this. When he says justify many, Paul is interpreting this. He's allowing this verse to echo into Romans 5.18, where he speaks about justifying life to everyone. As through one man, he goes into the Adam narrative. He goes back further than Abraham into the Adam narrative. And he says, as one man's disobedience constituted everyone as Sinners and therefore under condemnation. So one man's obedience led to the life-giving justification or the justification that is life, the life of the Messiah. The life that Jesus laid down is the life that we share, which is why we ought also to lay our lives down because we have the life that was laid down in 1 John 3.16 along with John 3.16. That's another whole course of doctrine right there, which we'll hold off for now. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. The iniquities here, carry their iniquities, has to refer to the sins of the whole world, according to 1 John 2.2. So the justification of many is a universal prophetic promise. So consider Paul's interpretation of that many being ultimately all of humanity as a single monolith. I'm going to use one of another Martin term monolith. And of course, a monolith is usually a stone monument, but there's a there is a poetic use or figurative use of the word monolith or monolithic. There are several times in the preaching of the gospel, in the epistles of Paul, the Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets, the Psalms, when all of humanity appears as a monolith or a single unified mass. All of humanity is considered to be a single unified mass of humanity. And so all turned away, says Romans 3.12. No one can be justified in God's sight. That's all of humanity. While we were yet sinners, that's not just we Christians. That's all of humanity as a single monolith in all of history concentrated at the cross. The cross is the concentration of all time. It's the concentration of all history. It's there when God saw the whole mass of humanity 
as a unified whole of enslaved and complicit people under sin, under death, under the flesh, in the power of the present age from which they could not extract themselves. So by the cross, by the resurrection following the cross, Jesus Christ delivered the monolith or all humanity from its enslavement. That's where we have the idea. See, I'm aiming at something in this series. Do Paul's epistles in toto, in their totality, speaking specifically of the ten epistles minus the pastorals, and I have a whole holy other thing for that group of epistles. They're phenomenal. And do Paul's epistles actually present to your view and to your both auditory and visual perception a vision of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance and therefore can all of Paul's epistles taken together be an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, even as John's gospel and John's apocalypse do that. There's a remarkable connection between Paul and John. There's a remarkable connection between Paul and Peter. And some of these academic theologians actually think that Paul had a gripe with Peter and Peter had a gripe with Paul that remained throughout and that there's also contradictions between Peter's epistles and Paul's epistles. I don't see that, and I'm going to demonstrate that that's not the case. And I also have even heard people say that Revelation, John is actually antagonistic to the things Paul says in Revelation. I don't see that. That's why there's got to be not just theological wisdom over here and exegesis over here, which usually doesn't get too theological. What we have to have is a theological exegesis. That's what I'm attempting to do although I'm just a child in it, just learning it. So we're dealing here with all humanity. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. So Paul allows that to echo into his Romans 5, where he interprets that many being ultimately the monolith of humanity as a single whole a uniform whole. Please note that God called Abraham as one single individual. When I called him, he was one. I blessed him and made him many. Many, I guess, because his seed, Christ, is the one whom God promised all would be blessed in him. I called him as one. Here's a radical individualism in the gospel. God didn't call you together with a bunch of other people. He called you alone. He elicited faith in you somewhere along the line. You might not be able to point to the day or the hour. He elicited faith in you. He called you alone. He called Abraham alone. And this goes along with the principle that I taught you before many times. God always calls and elects or elects and calls with a view to the inclusion of others. When he called Abraham, Abraham was just one man, but he made him many. But the many is all because it's in Abraham's seed 
that all will be blessed. And the blessing that's promised is the promised Holy Spirit, as we're going to see. And this is going to take a long time to iron out. I'm trying to put my arms around a very large forest of trees right now. And so I'm congratulating you for your patience. So please note that God called Abraham as one single individual out of the Ur of Chaldees where he was an idolater and his father was an idol maker. Just like Saul, he was in the process of persecuting the church when God called Saul of Tarsus. And so he called Abraham... Not when Abraham decided, oh, this idolatry is terrible. I want God. I want the true God. He just called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and said, get out of your father's house, the idol maker's house. And so Abraham was called as a pagan idolater. And that's what the Galatians were. They were pagan idolaters, and God called them into Christ. Same was the case with Abraham. When he was a pagan, God called him. So please note that God called Abraham as one single individual with the intention of making him many. Ernst Kasemann observed from his famous commentary on Romans that I began to tackle. Speaking of Romans 1.16, he says this, Universalism and the most radical individualism are here two sides of the same coin. He talks about to everyone that believes, and he sees a universalism in that, not an exclusion of others from some who believe and some who don't believe. He sees a universalism in that. That's another thing I've got to work out in this series. So as I've taught often here, the election, and we would also add the calling, the gifts and the calling of God in Romans eleven twenty nine are without revocation. They are not revocable. So Paul's so-called conversion is probably better called a calling. When God calls, the call is effective. It does what it says. God is mighty in counsel, but he's also powerful in his deed. When he calls, it's an effectual call. It's not a call that you can heed if you want or not heed if you don't want. And that's because we are, our will is enslaved and God does invade and intrude into the human will When the human will is enslaved. After you are saved, your will is liberated for a cheerful obedience to the truth and grace. God then does not violate your will, but urges you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He urges you to walk by means of the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But he will never intrude again as he did once in your enslaved will, because now your will is free. That's why there's things called reward, because we can use our freedom as a base of operations to serve one another by love, or we can use our freedom as a base of operations to be controlled again by the flesh, to continue or perpetuate Adamic ontology. And so those who use their free will to obey the truth of the gospel, as Galatians 5, 7 puts it, will eventually have a reward, a harvest that comes through sowing to the spirit. Whereas those who perpetuate their Adamic ontology and even try to make it religious or try to convert Adam's ontology into something that looks more acceptable to Christian peers but not to God, that person will suffer loss in a day of evaluation. 
yet not of salvation, because the only foundation that ever can be laid is laid, and it's Jesus Christ. So that'll help to begin to answer the question that I've received from more than one person about reward. So as I've taught here often, the election of one person or of one particular people like Israel is with a view to the inclusion of many more. In the case of Abraham and in the case of Christ, who is Abraham's singular seed, Galatians 3.16, Genesis 12.7, etc., the many is all the nations. Jesus Christ is said to be the elect one in 1 Peter 1.20. Peter allows Isaiah 42.1 to echo into his epistle. Jesus Christ is the elect one. God the Father says, consider my servant, my eclectos, my elect one. He's called the elect one in Luke 9.35. He's called the elect one in Luke 22.35, 23.35. While he's on the cross, he's called the elect one of God. Was Jesus Christ elected so that he alone could have a blessing from God, or was he elected alone to be many? I think he was elected alone and called alone. In Gethsemane, he was alone. But God called him alone, but made him many, which means that he called Jesus Christ to encompass all of the monolith of humanity. Whereas in Adam all die, it seems. And in Christ all will be made alive. And it's been a shame how translations have taken the punch out of that all in 1 Corinthians 15 by putting an emphasis in the wrong place. I'm going to hit that someday too. So then, the teachers in Galatia that intruded into Paul's gospel community there were applying what was an obligation to Abraham's physical descendants under the covenant to a condition to be met. In other words, they saw an obligation that God gave after Abraham's had entered into the promise. They took an obligation of the covenant and tried to make it a condition for the pagans, which is a wrong move. A wrong move is not even the way to express how bad that is. And so they made the obligation to Abraham's physical descendants under the covenant to a condition to be met by Gentiles in order to be justified or to become part of God's elect people. Paul took the Galatians back. He does this many times. He says, let's go back further to Abraham's time as a Gentile. This is what applies to you guys. You were pagans. You were idolaters. They were. It says in Galatians 4, 8, and 9, they honored and observed certain times and certain holy days, and they had all these gods that they worshipped and nature gods, and they were all, Paul said, they were the elements of the cosmos that are weak and beggarly that could do nothing for you. So Paul took the Galatians back to Abraham where they could identify with him as a Gentile and as a pagan idolater to show them that their reception of the spirit, which is the promised blessing that God promised Abraham and his seed, that their reception of the spirit, which is the promised blessing, again, that's 2 Corinthians 1.19 to 22, along with Ephesians 1.13 to 14, the Holy Spirit 
who is the quintessence. And quintessence is an important word because it means the purest and most concentrated form of an essence. The Holy Spirit is the essence of the promise in its purest and most concentrated form. The promised Holy Spirit whom God sent into our hearts is the way that we participate in Christ because he's the spirit of the son. He's the spirit of Christ. And we're the sons of God in union with Christ. The Holy Spirit is the promised blessing that God promised to give to all the nations in his Abraham's seed. I'm laying some groundwork here for something that I'll keep repeating till you get it. So don't think you're getting, you don't have to get everything I'm saying here tonight. I'm kind of laying some groundwork here. So then when you lay a foundation, you can't really imagine what the building's going to look like, but this is kind of foundational for Galatians chapter three. The Holy spirit is the purest, most concentrated form of the essence of the promise to Abraham that in his seed, All the nations would be blessed. The Galatians had received the spirit on the occasion of the gospel of Jesus faithfulness when it was reported to them, which elicited their faith and brought them into participation with Christ's fidelity in the same way that Abraham's faith elicited by the unconditional promise made by God was an early participation in the fidelity of Jesus by Abraham. And it was a paradigm, not of justification by faith for others in the future. It was rather an analogy to the fidelity of Jesus Christ to the point where God was glorified by that fidelity. From Romans 4.21, I'm taking a long way around to get to that passage. First, Galatians 3. Paul wrote Romans after Galatians, despite its order in the scripture and in your Bible. And he develops in Romans 4 in greater detail what he already had to deal with in Galatians 3. Sometimes critical situations give you wisdom for larger situations in the future. I found that to be true. The calling of Abraham alone, let me reiterate, that is as one was with a view to him becoming many. The election of Jesus Christ, who is the seed, First Peter 1.20, compared with Luke 9.35 and 23.35, conferring back to Isaiah 42.1 and other places. The calling of, a, of Jesus Christ, or the calling and election of Jesus Christ, who suffered death for the iniquities of all humankind, was with a view to him justifying, or better, giving life sharing his own life, which is only done through the Holy Spirit, to all or the many. Paul had already spoken for himself and for Peter, and even for the Jewish Christian teachers, that he and they, as Jews, had believed in Jesus. I have, you have, I'm assuming. Not to be justified, but to acknowledge or to demonstrate the fact that the source of their justification was Jesus Christ's faithfulness. That's what Galatians 2.16 is about. The whole dialectic of contradictories in Galatians, as well as in Romans, centers in the antinomy between divine action in Christ 
and human action. The whole thing is whether or not salvation is of the Lord or if salvation is of a human action. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation, that means it's totality. Before it's initiative, there was the intention. After it's initiative, there it's, it's completion. It's all of the Lord. At least that's Paul's take. That's my take. That's Galatians' take. So the whole contradiction or the dialectic of contradictories centers in the antinomy between or the two opposite laws between a divine action in Christ. Is that what brought about your salvation? Or a human action? Is that what brought about your salvation? That's really the bottom line of the question being asked here. The point of Galatians 3, 6 is that Abraham's faith and, as Romans 4 puts it, his prolonged superhuman faithfulness until Isaac was born and then his faithfulness that was demonstrated when he offered Isaac, this is a superhuman faith. If you're justified by that, then good luck because you've got to get to the level of the fidelity of Abraham in order to be justified if that's your, your take. It's not mine. So the point of Galatians 3.6 is that Abraham, as a pagan idolater, had faith elicited at the moment of a report from the scripture. The scripture preached this to him, which means the word, which was with God and was God. Jesus Christ preached this gospel to him, and it elicited faith in him. So the point of Galatians 3.6 is that Abraham's faith and indeed his prolonged superhuman faithfulness recorded in Romans 4.21 was credited as being righteousness and that God had rectified him long before he was circumcised and before Abraham circumcised the males of his household. And so Paul is saying, though Abraham did that, that wasn't a condition to be met to receive the promise. So let's look at Galatians 3.7. I'm going to do a detailed exegesis of Galatians in the future, maybe. I'm not doing that now, though I'm getting passages out for you. Galatians 3.7, you know then, he says. Some people think this is an imperative. I think it's an indicative that reminds them of what they know already. You know then that those who are from faithfulness, that's ek, see if you remember this word, pistios, we find it in Romans 1.17. Those who are of faithfulness or from faithfulness, these are the sons of Abraham. Not circumcised people, people who are circumcised, but people who are out from faithfulness. Ultimately, Paul's going to show that this faithfulness of which, from which they come or this faithfulness of which they are, is the faithfulness of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Those who are from the faithfulness, not ex ergon, from their works, but from ek pistios, God's act in Christ. Those who are of God's act through the fidelity of Christ are the sons of Abraham. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John, speaking of John and Paul, Pharisees considered their physical descent from Abraham to make them children of God. They said in one fell swoop to him in John 8, 41, we are the children of Abraham. Our father is God. Jesus begged to differ on both scores. In his 
argument with them or debate with him, Jesus gently says in John eight fifty six, with the gentleness of eternal power, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He didn't say Abraham believed and was justified. He said Abraham saw the unveiling of Messiah. He saw the apocalypse of the Messiah. And that triggered his joy. Because obviously between him seeing and him rejoicing, faith was elicited. He saw the unveiling of Messiah and rejoiced because that vision... That's the visual, just as the report, the auditory gospel, Akoe, that presented a vision to the Galatians, 3.1. When Paul spoke, he presented a vision to them. I painted a picture of Christ and him crucified. I portrayed him right in your midst. They saw the vision of the crucified Messiah through the speaking of the Apostle Paul. Effective gospel preaching paints the picture. And when you see him... You look to him, you're saved. When you see him, and every eye will see him, according to Revelation 1-7, and all flesh will see and experience the glory of Yahweh. Eventually, all flesh, all humanity. From faithfulness, those who are from faithfulness, Eventually, everyone is going to see with effect from the vision the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And it's going to evoke or elicit faith in every single individual case. Otherwise, how can every tongue acknowledge Yahweh to be Yeshua to the glory of God the Father, if not inspired by the Spirit to say that? Philippians 2, 9 to 11. So from faithfulness here in Galatians 3, 7 is ek pistios. That being the faithfulness or the faith that came into the world. And he's going to show this. When Christ came into the world, faithfulness came into the world. Christ is his own faithfulness. And so he's going to show this. And I'm going to probably keep going in Galatians, maybe even tomorrow night. I might get into not the promise and the gospel, but the curse and the cross. That's next. The curse and the cross. Which eliminates the curse and allows for no obstacles for the blessing to come to pagans without circumcision. All right. But let's close with this. Ekpistios means the faithfulness that came into the world when Christ came. And thus, it's the faithfulness or the faith being that of Christ. Remember Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God or his divine deliverance is being apocalyptically revealed from faithfulness, God's in Christ, to faithfulness, Christ's in you. Even as it stands written, my righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live by resurrection because of his faithfulness to the extent of death. That's an expanded giving of the sense of Habakkuk 2.4, the key thesis verse in Paul in Romans. So 
If Paul intends that Abraham's faithfulness has an analogy to the Galatians' faith or faithfulness, it's still clear. Let's just even go there. Let's concede that to the people who believe that this is a justification by faith analogy. If Paul does intend that Abraham's faithfulness have an analogy to the Galatians' faith or faithfulness, it is still clear that he's not teaching that people are justified by their faith rather than by doing the works of the law, but that people, including Abraham and the Galatians, have the blessing of God through participation in Messiah's fidelity. Either way you slice it. Galatians 3.8. Now the scripture, please notice that and capitalize scripture if you're taking notes. The scripture here is personified. Just as the word was with God and the word was God is personified in John 1.1 and John 1.14. Now the scripture foreseeing that God would, and I like the word rectify here rather than justify for reasons I'll explain later, not tonight. Now the scripture foreseeing that God would rectify the Gentiles, that is set them right by delivering and liberating them. That's what the idea here of justify is, is to set someone right from a previous wrong condition of enslavement and complicity to sin and fear of death. So now the scripture, foreseeing that God would rectify the Gentiles, that's the gen- pagans in general, by faithfulness, that's ek pistios again, which we have related to Jesus Christ's faithfulness in Romans 1.17. So here's how I put it. Now the scripture, foreseeing that God would rectify the Gentiles or the pagans by faithfulness, that of Christ, that means, and preach the gospel in advance to Abraham. The scripture personified, which means God, or the word of God, Jesus Christ, the Memra, as the Targums put it, the word, the son, in you all the nations will be blessed. That's the gospel. Where's the condition? Where is it? Where's the condition? It's an unconditional promise. In you. The gospel was preached to Abraham in advance, and here it is. In you, all the nations will be blessed. Where's the condition? It's an unconditional promise. So is the gospel. So, in you, all the nations will be blessed. Genesis 12.3, Genesis 18.18, it's repeated. Hence the probable reason why Paul uses promises, plural, In Galatians 3, it simply means it's this same promise, but he keeps repeating it. And he even adds not only to Abraham, but something even more important, and to your seed, Christ. So then, he says in verse 9, those who are from faithfulness, ek pistios again, those who are from faithfulness, like Romans 3.26, those who are of the faithfulness of Jesus, he makes it explicit there in Romans 3.26, ek pistios Jesu, of those who are of, we could say, or coming from the faithfulness of Jesus. So he says in verse 9, so then those who are from faithfulness, and this is in contrast with from the works of the law, Those who are from faithfulness, that is the faithfulness of Christ, which he'll show later on, the singular seed of Abraham in whom all the nations are to be blessed. So again, here it is, 3.9. So then those who are from faithfulness are, that is their status now, blessed 
with faithful Abraham. Now, in closing, the main thing I want you to see here, and that's all I really want you to see tonight, if you don't get all these other intricacies, I want you to see that Paul is saying here that the gospel was preached to Abraham as an unconditional promise. And it's arguable, I think, successfully, that the unconditional promise was universalized in the phrase, all the nations. In Psalm 22, the great crucifixion psalm, in 22:27, it says, all the nations of the earth will come and worship before you. The same one who screamed from the cross in identification with the desperate creation will be raised from the dead and all the nations will come to him. And as we're going to see, all the nations includes that nation after the flesh called Israel. God's got a plan in the works here. He's got a plan. Going to pan out to be a successful invasion of creation, a successful redemptive invasion of creation. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him, the world would be saved. And I will do all my will, God says in Isaiah 46, 10. If you don't know what to think, read Isaiah 46, 10, exegete it if you want to, commit it to memory if you want, You can memorize all the scriptures and it won't help you because to memorize the scripture in an English translation comes along with all the mistakes of the English translation and gives you all the mistaken interpretation of an English translation. That's why we have to study and exegete. But here we go. Paul's going somewhere here. The gospel preached by the scripture or the word. What does the scripture say? The gospel preached in advance by the scripture to Abraham was the unconditional and universal promise that all the nations are to be blessed in Abraham. And later, he will clarify in this very chapter, in his seed, more importantly, in his seed, which is Christ, Christ who is born through the line of Isaac, not Ishmael. But the salvation will include Ishmael as well as Isaac. You mean all those Arabic people that follow Muhammad or Muhammad, I guess they call him now. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. The gospel preached by the scripture is going somewhere here. Paul's going somewhere with this. It's aiming at the climax that those who are of Pistios are God's new eschatological creation. Those who are ekpistios, from the faithfulness, beneficiaries of the faithfulness of Jesus, they are the new creation. For if anyone is in Christ, there's the new creation. We could say there's the inauguration of the new creation, which will eventually be universalized. The church is simply the inaugural new, new creation. That's all. The Israel of God. But we're called the Israel of God. But why are we called the Israel of God? So that we can be the Israel of God? No, we're called with a view to being many, to being all. I hate to say this, but I recommend you listen to this message more than once, if you're serious. You don't have to, never have to. You can take, you get a CD, you can toss it as a Frisbee if you want. I don't care. 
But I'm just saying you might have to listen to this more than once to get the point because I can tell it's not going over too well. And it's not because of you, it's because of me. There's a lot I'm trying to wrap my arms around here. And the new creation, as the scripture says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither Jewishness or Gentileness means anything at all. So when he says nations, he's not excluding Israel. He's not excluding any of the Gentiles. But what is something is a new creation. That's really something. And the new creation right now consists of people in Christ, people who are of the faithfulness of Jesus, and who are knowingly, and sometimes not knowingly, participating in his faithfulness, or living by the faithfulness of the Son of God, as Paul put it in Galatians 2.20. Now, where we're going next the curse and the cross to show that the faith or the faithfulness being spoken of is that of Christ is shown most dramatically by Paul's equating Christ's faithfulness with Christ's death for us, where he became a curse for us. That was the expression of his faithfulness for us. More specifically, it equates the faithfulness of Christ with his becoming a curse for us. So both the faithfulness of Christ and our participation in that faithfulness certainly trumps the human act of circumcision. I think you can see that now, at least, that trumps the human act of circumcision. In fact, the human act of circumcision or any human act stacked upon one another in good works, all stacked up together, are nothing compared to the act of God in Christ and the act of Christ in God. Believe me that the Father is in me and that I'm in my Father. The God, why believe that? In John 14, 11, 14, 10, and 11. Why believe that? Because the act of God in Christ and the act of Christ in God is your salvation. Unconditionally. The faithfulness of Christ trumps the works of the law in toto. Because the faithfulness of Christ culminated in his death for sins. And listen to this carefully. This is the last point, maybe one of the most important. The death of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ culminated in his death for sins. And thus ended the law's ability to enslave or to curse. Which is a power that the law had. The power that the law had to curse and to enslave wasn't by the law itself. It was by this, by sin co-opting the law by the flesh co-opting commandeering the law for its own purpose. So when Christ died, when the faithfulness of Christ culminated in his death for sins, that ended the law's ability to enslave or to curse. And the law's power to do that is had only as it's co-opted by sin. The strength of sin is in the law. That means sin took captive of the law, took the law captive. And what the law could not do in that it was weak because it was co-opted by the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's all coming. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to really lay down some groundwork for a superstructure to which will be revealed more and more as we progress through Galatians. I guess I'm asking you now just that you'll continue to bless our ongoing study.
under this series called Better Call Paul. And that perhaps it seems that you're leading to a more detailed exegesis of Galatians or of Romans or of both. I pray that you'll guide and direct me in the way that I should go with regard to this. We thank you for this opportunity tonight for the scripture to speak to us with the same power that it spoke to Abraham. And thank you, Father, that the gospel is like the promise, not the law. And the promise is unconditional. Thank you.